I like that bumper video right there. That's awesome. All right, kids, you showed up to church today. I'm going to start off with a pop quiz right off the bat. First question for you. Everybody has an A-plus right now, so you just got to maintain that through this pop quiz. That's all you got to do. What is this? Still got an A-plus. Pretty good. Now, this book has two sections. There's a big section toward the front. There's a smaller section toward the back. We call the big one toward the front the what? Call the one toward the back, the little one. No, you can stick with that because you double down. It's okay. But I'm going to only give you a half a point for that one. And you're like, why is he doing that? That's not fair. It is the Old Testament. It is the New Testament. I go, kind of. And what I mean by kind of is that's a little bit of a newfangled approach to looking at this book. But if you go back more historically, the little chunk toward the back end uh, is better referred to as the Christian scriptures. And the big chunk at the front end is considered to be the Hebrew scriptures. And we want to kind of have that framework in mind because we're wanting to remember as we go into that section toward the front, we are dealing with a people group, a population, and it's their story, right? It's a story we learn from, we can glean from, but it's their story of like trial and error and success and failure and wrestling with God as they're seeking to be a nation. In fact, the, the name Israel literally means wrestles with God, and that's what you see in their story. All the way from the origin component where the divine and the human enter into relationship and then we watch that story all the way through to the very end which is pretty much like the Persian Empire is kind of laid waste to the system. That's the whole story. And so when we think about entering into a series like we're doing here, we want to have kind of that Hebrew mindset in mind that these are Hebrew scriptures. Now if you wanted to get a little bit more precise, what the Hebrews call this is the Tanakh. The Tanakh, that's their word for it. And I know it sounds very like Klingon, suddenly, Tanakh, right? Very aggressive. But in that kind of Tanakh, the T and the N and the K all stand for something. The Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketavim right there. Those are the three components of the Hebrew scriptures. And here's a little fun fact for just a minute, because you're here, so I can give you a little bit of education in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, the way they organize is different than the way we Christians have organized that chunk of work. So we broke it into five components. They leave it as three components. We move some of the chronology around. They have a different chronology. So for example, with the Torah, that's the first five works that comprise the life of Moses. And that idea is kind of the instruction. And that would be really the best translation. We say law, we're going to get into this later, where law may not be quite the right word to understand it. It's more aptly understood as the instruction. From there, you have the prophets. And for them, the prophets are a little different than us, because if you remember your Hebrew scripture, uh, like Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, all of that, they consider those the prophets, as well as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Obadiah and all the other ones back there in the back. But they put those kind of in the middle. And then at the very end is the writings. And the writings are like the wisdom literature, right? So Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. But the very last work of the Hebrew Scriptures is actually First and Second Chronicles. It's the very tail end. And the way Second Chronicles ends is in a hanging sentence. It doesn't cut, cut, finish. It just kind of stops mid-sentence. And it's kind of that reminder of, hey, there's more going on as the story continues to move forward. 
And if you understand the structure then of how the Hebrew people kind of approach their scriptures, what you see is that it starts with that instruction component, the five works of Moses, right? But then from that, you see the trial and error of them trying to live out those things. And that's the midsection, the prophets. But from that, they should always reflect and have wisdom, which is why it's at the tail end of the Hebrew scriptures. And so the whole thing is a story of wrestling and trying and striving and, again, all kinds of mistake along the journey. But trying to get to that place where they are usable by God, they are blessable by God, and they can be a blessing to others. Now, with all of that said, way back in 2017, uh, my heart and goal was to go through those five works of Moses over the course of five years. And so we started into that, and then COVID happened, right? And COVID kind of blocked us from finishing for a while, but then like last year we came back around to the book of Numbers, and now we are where we are at today, finishing the final work of the Torah. And with that, I hope you learn something, you're challenged by something, and uh, you're educated in this whole thing so that you can live out what God uh, has called us to do as people. So right now I'm going to go ahead and pray. We're going to jump right into it, and you're going to get a little bit more of a sense of what this is all about. So let's go ahead and do it together. Jesus, I thank you that these stories, these instructions, this wisdom, this prophecy, all of this Hebrew scripture is still for us. In that sense, it's not like old, and now we just care about new, but it is a part of your unfolding story. It's the way you worked. It's the way you're still working. It's a promise that was made, a promise that we are still a part of, and and so I pray that we will own that, and we will want to live by that, that we will take the lessons that are learned there, both of failure and success, and figure out what not to do and what to do so that we can honor you in all that we do. So we thank you for this day, for your grace, and for, again, just the way you love us so radically and so purely. And so we praise you this day in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, so when I started off in the Torah uh, back in 2017, I knew that I wanted it to be something that when it came to the, the graphics of it, I wanted it to be kind of artful. I wanted it to have a symmetry. I wanted it to be the same artist that was kind of putting all of this together. And I also wanted it to be very indigenous to us. I wanted it to be like a homegrown thing. And so my good friend, Don Barnett, he delivered, man. And he did all the artwork. So give Don a hand right now because honestly exceeded my expectations so much more awesome than I thought it could be and so even that bumper that you just saw he did that he did all the artwork in this and so just a quick trip down memory lane we started with Genesis and man Genesis was a great story right where it's the origin story and we see where God is with people and people are with God but then people revolt against God and now God is trying to work through people to get the whole thing back on track and it's a messy messy chunk of the Bible messy lives messy stuff messy problems Eventually in the story, the people of Israel find themselves in Egypt, and while it starts out good, it turns bad, they end up enslaved, and from that, God seeks to liberate them. That took us in the book of Exodus. And that's really where much of our story even today is kind of connected, right? So God's like, let my people go through Moses to Pharaoh, and there's this big journey. And it's in Exodus, you see the first iteration of the law. God does it on a mountain, there's the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other things, 613 total, that happens in Exodus. During the period of the story of Exodus, which is about a year and a half, roughly, two years maybe, uh, inside that, this other third book is written, Leviticus. And yes, we were dumb enough to do Leviticus as a church, right? That place where Bible reading plans go to die, you know? And, and yet, to, for me, my favorite of the whole series. 
I loved Leviticus. I so thrived in it. Because at the core of Leviticus is the command to love your neighbor. And once you understand that is the center point, then all of those weird regulations begin to make a little bit of sense. But that was kind of in that Exodus period that Leviticus came. But we also know the people of Israel, they'd be dumb. They'd be dumb, they'd do sinful stuff. And from that, it then led to the book of Numbers. And Numbers was the wanderings. That's really the Hebrew word. That's the name they use for that piece of literature. It's the wanderings. It's like almost 40 years, like 39 and a half years of just a long hike in the desert because everybody was dumb. But then that brings us to Deuteronomy, right? And and, and Deuteronomy, in, in its real labeling, means second law. And it's because now there's a second generation that needs to be reapproached with the law of God. So it's a second law given to them as they're getting ready to enter into what I'm going to call New Eden, the promised land. It's like a New Eden getting back to God's space where God will dwell among them, just like an Eden. It won't be quite the same, but that's the heart behind the whole thing. Now, what you want to understand also about this, though, is that this word Deuteronomy is a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. And it's not the name that actually the Hebrew people use of this book. In fact, to get its name, you want to start in the very first chapter, first verse. It says, these are the words, the Devarim. These are the Devarim of Moses who spoke to the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness east of the Jordan River. So they haven't entered into New Eden yet. They're right on the cusp. It's the last six months of the journey, and this is the work This is the message that Moses is giving. And what I love about this Devarim concept is it just means words or things or stuff. It's really simple. It's like, here's the stuff that Moses wants you all to know. And as he does this, it's going to happen in three speeches. So there's like a little introduction, and then there's his first speech that takes up kind of the first four chapters. Then there's his second speech, which is huge. You think I go long. Moses goes long. That's a long speech, right? And then there's a third speech, and then he kind of ties some stuff up with some other wisdom, a song, so it breaks out into Lord of the Rings-style music and everything else. It's all there at the end. But it's all for their instruction. It's for them to realize what they're getting into and the stuff that they need to know. And if you were to distill down the stuff to five simple principles, it's going to be five ideas. It's going to be all about the Lord, about love, about listening, about learning, and about the land. And they're all going to be related. In fact, even as you saw in the bumper video there, to listen is to love, to love is to listen. That's all directed to the Lord. There's going to be a learning involved with all these rules and ideas that that Moses is going to give, and they're all then bound to the land, where there's something weird, almost mystical about the fact that to the degree that Israel does well, the land flourishes. To the degree they get away from it, the land begins to decay. Like, they they will be literally living in the essence of what God is wanting to do in the world, to bring flourishing over decay, and if they do flourishing things, the land will flourish. If they don't, it begins to fall apart. And so Moses is speaking into all of this, and with his first speech, which we're going to just rip through today, he's dealing with reflection. Reflection. Here's the second generation, and he's saying, I want you to know how we got to now. I want you to realize what's happened over the last 40 years so that as you go into the promised land, you don't make the same mistakes. And so he's really trying to bring them up to speed on some things. And I think this is good, this idea of reflection, right? Even for our own lives. It's good to stop, to contemplate where we've been, what we've done, 
to kind of ascertain what things should change and not change, and then from that to pivot if we need to fix something. All of that is so super healthy for our lives and for their life as well. Because as George Santiago so well, well put it, he says, those who cannot remember their past are condemned to repeat it. Moses knows this. He's just went through it with generation one, and so now he's reflecting. And as he starts this reflection for generation two, uh, he starts with God's vision, right? So much of Deuteronomy is going to be like mission statement kind of stuff. But you got to remember, like in any organization, you don't want to have a mission statement without a vision, right? So our vision as a church is helping people believe life is better with Jesus. That's our vision. And then our mission statement is then we want to do that by making sure everybody feels welcomed and valued and coached and unleashed. And then we have these values that we live out underneath that. And so Moses is doing the same thing. So he starts with this idea of God's grand vision so that the rest of the uh, work here can then unpack the mission statement. So if you're taking notes on our app this morning, that's number one. Moses reestablishes the plan of God. Not just the plan, right? You know, like when football players are like, the Ohio State. The plan of God. This is the big plan. So it starts in verse 1 again. These are the words that Moses spoke to all the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness east of the Jordan River. When we were at Mount Sinai, he says, the Lord our God said to us, you've stayed at this mountain long enough. It is time to break camp and move on. He says, look, I'm going to give you a land that is before you. Go in and occupy it for the land the Lord your God swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all their descendants. So right off the bat, you see there's Lord and land, and it's all tied to legacy. And this all has to do with this vision that surrounds Abraham. And you have to understand, for a Jewish mindset, as soon as they hear that name, it triggers ideas. Right? Like the name has something associated with it. So for example, if I say Kim Kardashian, you go, bougie. Like you just know. Right? Or if I say Pete Carroll, you'll say enthusiasm. If I say Jim Harbaugh, you'll say cheater. You know? So, right? You just know. Like names just trigger things. And, and here, as soon as he says Abraham, they go, promise. That God made a promise to Abraham. And what's the promise? Go back to Genesis, right? Chapter 12. It's one of my favorite passages. I think this drives a lot of my theological understanding. It says, the Lord said to Abram, because he hadn't had been renamed yet, but the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father, your family, all that stuff, and go to another land that I'm going to show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. But in this, the vision, the goal, is that all the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's the vision. So break it out just visually for a minute. There's this one dude, Abraham, right? Just chilling. But God takes that one dude that's chilling, a guy that wasn't necessarily seeking God. He wasn't a godly man. He worshiped other idols and pagan things. I mean, he just was a mess. But God's grace kicks in his door and repurposes him for a cause. And he says, I'm going to make you into a nation. This one dude, I'm going to make you a nation. Right? Which is crazy to think that that's what he can do with this one older guy. But then he does, and as you're going through Genesis, you see again, trial, error, failure, sin, loss of focus so often. But somehow, through God's grace, that one dude grows into a set of tribes, 12 clans that are 
comprised of this wrestling with nation, or wrestling nation of Israel that wrestles with God, right? And that nation, he's saying, and as Moses is saying this to the second generation, they're to remember that, oh yeah, we're a part of this legacy. We're a part of this calling. We're a part of this thing that God is wanting to do in the world. Because that's what started with our ancestor. That's why we are here today. That's why we're listening to these words is what they're thinking to themselves. And what they want to also think about in this is not just, hey, when we get to the land, we'll be blessed. We'll be sitting pretty, fat and happy, milk and honey. It's gonna be so perfect for us. No, what they want to remember is that, no, you are gonna be blessed if you do blessable things so you can bless others. And so that 12 clan thing is to export to the other families of the earth. They're to take that out. Here's what I love about this. Way back here in Genesis chapter 12, when God submits, that's the vision. You know what that's called? The gospel. It's called the gospel. And I'm not making that up. I'll show you in a second. But that's what it is. And it's way back there. And I want you to anchor that because it's so easy for us to get myopic and say, myopic and go, the gospel is the cross and resurrection. And I go, the cross and resurrection is the means by which God reconciles us to himself, but the gospel is much bigger than just that. And the purpose of that had a much bigger agenda than just I get saved and I go to heaven and I don't go to hell and that's all it is. No, it's much grander. It's that we will then bless the world around us, because we've been blessed by God, that's also a part of the gospel. In fact, Paul says this in Galatians. He says, what's more, the scriptures looked ahead to a time when God would make the Gentiles right in the sight because of their faith. God proclaimed the good news. Uangelion, the word gospel is right there, right? He proclaimed the gospel to Abraham long ago when he said, here's the gospel, Abraham. All the nations will be blessed through you. See, I love this because it suddenly makes the gospel much more robust. It's not just about my soul, but it's about my soul then imprinting itself in the world in a Jesus-like way. It's not just about my own spiritual blessing. It's about how I take that and I give that blessing to others. And so when I look at this, three things kind of stand out to me. You know, first of all, it's just the fact that you and I are still a part of a legacy that started in Genesis 12. We are. So we're not just reading Bible history here. This is like our spiritual 23andMe moment, right? This is for all of us. The second thing I see is I go, man, we're called to do what Israel was called to do, to bless the families that are around us, to bless our community. It's why as a church we say, we do things for the good of our city, right? Because that is what it means to fulfill this promise that God wanted to work through in Abraham, the one that still carries in our whole lives. And that's kind of that third element of this, is to go, man, the gospel is so big. It's so big. In fact, one of the things I think is so important in my thinking is just how much the gospel through our lives is designed to, again, change the environment that we find ourselves in. Because notice the promise doesn't say, and all the families of heaven will be blessed. It's all the families of earth will be blessed. It's a here and now thing that we do. It's a here and now good that we bring. It's a here and now love that we exercise. See, that's God's amazing plan. That's good news. The only problem with this is that God invites people to be in the process of it. And we muck it up. We do sometimes. 
We can be the weak link, link in, the, in the plan of God sometimes. We're, we're not quite what we should be. We're not quite doing what we should be invested in doing. We can tend to be more sinful than maybe to be godly. All of that is in there, and that's exactly what was happening with Israel. So he sets them aside to bless the nations as a blessing, but they've got problems. Thus, in the speech, it's the second thing in your notes, Moses reminds them of their recent past with God. Right? He says, normally... It takes only 11 days to travel from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, going by way of Mount Seir. But 40 years after the Israelites left Egypt, here we are. That's kind of the heart behind it, right? That was the book of Numbers, or the Wanderings. And he takes the next chapter and a half to go down memory lane with them. But it's like PTSD style, right? And you probably understand this. There's probably things in your own life, like waypoints, right? Where you go, oh, that was a pivotal moment because I did something really dumb and that I never did it again. Or this was a pivotal moment that changed the course of my life, right? There's just certain things, maybe five, six things in your life that are huge, so big, that they really do something in you. Well, that's what he does from chapter 1, verse 9 to chapter 2, verse 18. He just kind of highlights some memorable things. So the first is like, hey, we all left Egypt, right? We went through the Red Sea. And the Red Sea was awesome because God rescued us against the odds. But you all complained. As soon as we got to the other side, you're all moaning and griping and complaining, right? But remember that, that happened. And he goes, and then there was Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gave the covenant to us. He embraced us in love and loyalty to be his people that started with Abraham. And what happened there? You dummies, you worshiped a golden calf. You engaged in idol worship. Then we went to Kadesh Benia, and there was promise. And we sent out spies to check out the land. And God was going to give us the land, flowing with milk and honey. And what happened there? Y'all doubted. You didn't believe it, and you complained. And then you tried to take things in your own hands after that. And that started this 40-year escapade, right? Filled with things like power struggle and fear and bickering and displeasure with God, with Moses, with one another. All of that was in there. And so finally, at the end of the whole trek, was the Zared Brook, where that first generation finally kicked the bucket. They became fertilizer for the scrab grass of the desert. That was their journey, right? Because all the way through, they continued to neglect flourishing. They were meant to be an agent of flourishing. They rejected flourishing, and so from that came decay. But, but just think about that. Let's isolate all of those values for just a second, right? Complaining, idolatry, doubt, power struggle, all those things right there. Can you see why it was such a mess? I mean, just absorb those for a minute. Is there any family or church or culture or country that if those traits are the dominating traits, that they would flourish? No way. Never. Right? Those will bring nothing but decay and ultimately lead to a sense of death, right? They just will. And, and I think it's really valuable to look at this right now, and here's why. Uh, we're going into 2024. We're just underway. And this year is going to be fantastic, right? We're going to be moving into our new space on Main Street. There's going to be all sorts of excitement. We're going to probably see new people checking this out. We hope they stick and invest and all those kinds of things. It'll be awesome. But it's also going to be an election year. <gasps> you feel it. And I guarantee, I guarantee, there's going to be more than enough opportunity to complain and to doubt. Let's go back to the other side for a second there. 
perfect. And power struggle and fear and bickering, displeasure. All kinds of space to do that, right? You will be tempted all the time because there's this thing called culture wars, right? And, and, and it's like A versus B, D versus R, elephant versus like donkey, you know, whatever it is. And Jesus is like, I didn't ask you to fight in that war. I asked you to be a peacemaker. I asked you to be something different. Don't fall victim to all the things that only bring decay to an environment. You get to be a different kind of thing and a different kind of peacemaker playing a different kind of role that isn't saying it's A or B. It's just different. I care about something greater. I want to bless all the families of the earth because that's my calling. That's the gospel according to Genesis chapter 12. And I want to live that thing out. I want to invest in that space. Even if the families of the earth don't like me, don't agree with me, don't maybe even appreciate me, want, might want to hurt me. Jesus says, that's right, you get to love those people too. Right? That, that's the kind of difference making. And so while all those things bring death, there's something else that happens in this space, and that is new life. So the first generation has passed, and literally that, that place, that Zared brook, Zared means pruning. It's the brook of pruning. God prunes one group out, and raises the next group up. And in that sense, it's new life. And they can prepare for this new life that they're going to undertake. And so this is why Moses is coming in with a second Torah, or a reiteration of Torah, so that they can thrive in New Eden. Thus, next Moses readies them for the land of God with kind of a battle plan. He's like, okay, we know that they all died, you're all alive, we're getting ready to go. So as we get ready to go, you need to know some things, he says. Because they're going into this kind of geopolitical, like, jigsaw puzzle in the space that they're going to inhabit, right? So if you were to just look at a map of the land, you're going to realize it's like a minefield they got to have to work through and walk through to get to their ancestral home. And some of the tribal groups they're not supposed to fight with, and other tribal groups they're directly going to fight with and are supposed to fight with. And so Moses needs to unpack a little bit of that. So in this speech... He says, first of all, listen, don't mess with Edom, because they be family. They be family. They be connected to Esau. So remember Jacob and Esau, and Esau's the other line? He's like, don't fight them. They're like your cousins, right? So you're going to skip them. And he says, and then Amnon and Moab, you, you, you don't want to fight them either, because they also be family-ish, because they're connected to Lot. Now, the, the Israelites didn't necessarily love the descendants of Lot because, and this gets a little creepy and gross, but they descend because Lot impregnated his two daughters, and that's how the clan is born, and that's troubling. But they're like, well, family-ish enough. It's still Lot. But then everybody else, man, they're going to be problems, and so you better cowgirl up with that. And say, I go cowgirl instead of cowboy because I've met cowboys and cowgirls and the cowgirls sometimes are really, really tough when you least expect it, right? And from that, he's like, you're going to have to fight with those people. There's going to be a bunch of other people you fight with. And so they do. They actually have some battles on the east side before they go into the promised land and everything else. And so based on this, Joshua says then to the people from those skirmishes, he says, you have seen for yourself everything the Lord God has done. He will do the same to the kingdoms on the west side of the Jordan when we enter into the promised land. So don't be afraid of the nations that are there, for the Lord your God will fight for you. And so he's like, man, you've seen how God shows up. You've experienced it. So as we go in, have courage. 
Have faith, have determination, be obedient, do the right thing as we move forward. It's a great learning lesson. But as they go, there's another kind of sad part of the story. Because just as much as the first generation was just broken and sinful and lost out on the opportunity to go into the promised land, so too did their tribal leader, right? Moses also can't go into the promised land. Remember back in the book of the wanderings? He gets mad at the people, takes it out on a rock, and so God says, nope, you're never going to enter the promised land now. You blew it, dude. Well, Moses revisits that. And it's a little bit of a sidebar in his speech, but it's him seeking reprieve from God because of what he's done. He says, at that time I pleaded with the Lord, and I said, oh, sovereign Lord, You've only begun to show your greatness and the strength of your hand to me, your servant. If there's any God in heaven or earth who can do, perform such great things and mighty deeds as you, there are no other gods that can do this, he says. So please, let me cross the Jordan to see the wonderful land on the other side, the beautiful hill country, and the Lebanon mountains. Gosh, Lord, I, it was one time. I made one mistake, right? Like down the road, it's going to be like, you're going to have a guy named David. He's going to make a zillion mistakes. You're going to leave him on the throne. His kid's going to be even worse. You're going to leave him on the throne, right? Like, I'm sure Moses, like, if he saw what was going to happen down the road, he'd be like, and I'm getting busted for one thing? It's frustrating. So he seeks reprieve. But Moses is denied reprieve from God. He says, but the Lord was angry with me because of you, which I think is funny, right? Do you see it? Like, the Lord is angry with me, but you idiots, you know? Like, he's still probably a little bitter. Like, y'all made me so mad. I hit that rock. It's all on you a little bit, right? But the Lord, he says he wouldn't listen to me. Instead, God said, enough, right? Speak of it no more, but go up to Pigapik, Pishkapik, rather, and look over the land in every direction. Take a good look, but you may not cross the Jordan River. Instead, commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. He will lead the people across to the Jordan, or across the Jordan, rather, and he will give them the land that you now see before you as their possession. Right? So, so it's kind of like uh, what happened this week. Pete Carroll gets called into the owner's office, and he contends for his job, and he wants to keep the team, and he wants to keep leading, and they say no. Right? And in the same way, Moses is before God, let me lead the team, let me keep going, let me take another season, and God's like, no, you don't get that. Instead, you need to commission Joshua. But I will let you at least see the land. You'll never set foot on it. Your body will not be buried in it. But you can see it, but you're not going to be able to be a part of it. And so he absorbs that, right? He absorbs it. And he realizes that it's now going to be Joshua that's going to William Wallace the clans into the promised land. He's not going to be a part of it. And even though he can't enter, he can still educate the people one last time. And hence, this book the words, the things, the stuff. That leads us to number four. Moses recalibrates their understanding of God for living in the land of God. Just recenters everybody. And he does this not just for them, but for the future generations, right? He says, watch out, be careful to not forget these things yourselves, these things that you've seen, these things that you understand, these things that you've experienced. Don't let these memories, he says, escape from your mind as long as you live, and be sure to pass them on to your children and your grandchildren, right? He's trying to get ahead of this, right? Because he knows if your parents did this, you'll probably do it too. And there's really not an if here. By the end of this work, he's going to say, y'all going to be dumb, I know it. 
and I'm warning you about it, and when everything gets fixed again, this is how you can fix it, right? Like, it's all gonna be there, but still he's being good and saying, I'm just trying to tell you in advance. Bad things are gonna be coming if you don't do it right. You gotta remember who God is, what God seeks, and how to live based on that. And so he gives a quick three-point TED Talk. First, he reminds them, God is holy. God is holy, so obey him. He says, now, Israel, listen carefully to these decrees and regulations that I'm about to teach you. That's going to be speech two, right? And it's a long one. He says, obey them so that you may live, so that you may enter and occupy the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving to you. Do not add or subtract from these commands that I'm giving you. Just obey the commands of the Lord, your God, that I am giving to you. He likes repetition here, but he's trying to make a point. The word holy means uncommon. And I push this all the time. You can't just leave it uncommon. You have to go uncommon from what? What's common so that you would be uncommon? And when we went through Leviticus, we noted that that is about love displayed in mercy and justice. The way Israel was going to be different is they were going to have this sense of genuine love of God and neighbor that would then spill out and, and create kind of an equity for all. That's the heart of the whole thing. That's what they're to do. And so from this, he's going to lay down this series of regulations that are like a framework that from that framework, as you explore it, experience it, obey it, it builds in you something deeper than just raw obedience. It builds in you this thing called wisdom in which you can operate with in life. And that's kind of linked to the second thing. God is wise, so learn from him. God's holy, so obey him, but God is also wise, so learn from him. And I love this part of the work. He says, obey these things completely, and you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. I want you to really absorb this. I want you to pause and think about this is the ultimate goal of all God-oriented regulation is wisdom and intelligence. When they hear all these decrees, they will exclaim how wise and prudent are the people of this great nation for what great nation as a God is near to them as the Lord our God who uses us as we call on him. And what great nation has decrees and regulations as righteous and fair as the body of instruction that I am giving to you today? I love this because, again, the objective of the nation of Israel is not to be so dogmatic and so determined that they are of no practical good. Because, honestly, if dogmatism and just raw, like, do the rules is what God was seeking, then when Jesus shows up on the scene to the nation of Israel, he would have said, y'all nailed it, high fives. Because they're very rigid, they're very committed to the Bible, they understand the law, they memorize it from childhood, and they were executing not just the law, but all kinds of applications flowing from that. They were very determined. And Jesus shows up and says, he says, you're the worst of every generation in the history of Israel. So something else is sought than just, again, kind of detail and dogmatism. It's wisdom and intelligence. It's not just adherence, but it's kind of this compelling influence. Because that's what I see there. Right? He's like, man, when everything is on the right track and all the pistons are firing, right, what you're going to be is something compelling to the nations around you. They'll look and go, why? How? Your God is this, and you all do that, and this is amazing. See, that motivates me. I, I kind of look at like modern Christianity, and I go, I think that's when we would be in our sweet spot too. When the world around us would look and go, you guys are so wise, you're consistent, you're, you're just so compelling in what you do, how you approach things. Again, that's why I say in the culture wars, pick neither side, pick peacemaker. 
Right? Pick lover of neighbor, lover of enemy. All of that stuff is compelling. And, and that's what Moses is kind of giving them here too. Be compelling. Right? Now, this focus and strength is going to flow from his third point, which is God is supreme. God is supreme, so worship only him. He says, be very careful, right? Uh, you, you did not see the Lord's form when we were back there at Sinai, right? When he spoke to you from the fire on the mountain. So don't corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form, whether of a man or a woman, an animal of the ground, a bird of the sky, a small animal that scurries along the ground, or a fish in the depths of the sea. When you look up in the sky and you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the forces of heaven, don't be seduced into worshiping them. The Lord your God gave them to all the peoples of the earth. Again, God cares about all the peoples of the earth, not just the Israelites, right? He has a mission for all, not just them. So he says, be careful not to break the covenant the Lord your God has made with you. Do not make idols of any shape or form, for the Lord your God has forbidden this. If you break my covenant, you will quickly disappear from the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Here's the thing I can guarantee. From the days of Sinai to our modern world, we all, me, you, we all, we all are, are tempted to flirt with idols. We almost can't help it. And I think there's three variations of this. Some are the most obvious form, right? Like uh, the gods of another religious system. That would be an idol. Money can be an idol. Sex can be an idol. Power can be an idol. Security is one of the great idols of humanity. We want to ensure our security at all costs sometimes, right? So those can be idols. But then there are other idols that can be kind of religious idols, right? So dogmas can become idols, and religiosity can become idols. And if you were to look at the, the religious movements of Jesus' world, they themselves created idols. For them, even their Hebrew scriptures became an idol. Sometimes the Bible becomes an idol when you care more about that than the God who is giving it. You're more rigid about it than the God who wants you to do something in the world to bring the good news to people. There's all sorts of ways in which we can fall into idol worship. And sometimes we even take God as he's declared himself and we rearrange him into a God that we want. And that's another way that we can fall victim to that. We just kind of create borders around God that we want. All of us are tempted to do it. All of us give into it at some point. But Moses is wisely warning, that won't be blessable. That won't be usable. To be blessable, we have to dethrone the idols of our life. They, then, us, now. If, if, were to be vehicles for this world-blessing, life-shaping, good news of Jesus. Now, real quick, let's wrap up. Where does Deuteronomy meet real life? Just some diagnostic questions for all of us, including myself. First one, God has a route. So are you choosing the long way or the short way when it comes to living? Right? The long way is when we don't do the next right thing, but we do the next wrong thing, and it makes the trip longer. Right? And sometimes we choose short routes, which is just do what God tells us to do, do what Jesus says, and that's a short route. But we go, nope, I'm going to do it my way. That's a long route. Next, God is holy. So where can you grow in obeying him? What's that thing you know he's, he's telling you to do? It's undeniable, and you just keep pushing it off. Don't push it off. Next, God is wise. So how are you learning wisdom from him? Because that's the real step. It's taking this and then applying it in the world in a wise and intelligent way. How are you learning from him? God is supreme. So are you putting anything ahead of him? Persons, money, 
stuff, experiences, whatever it could be, right? Is he getting a little dethroned? He's half-cheeking it on the throne, and you've got your cheek on it too, right? And then last, God has a plan. So how are you blessing others with him? Because again, remember the plan. He's calling us to be a nation who reaches and loves the nations, to love our neighbors so that our neighbors might come in contact with him, may come to life in him, may come to be changed by him, and then they can become blessings to others who need to see him as well. Right now, I'm gonna ask the worship team to come on up for our closing time. And, and as they're coming up, I'm gonna ask all of you to stand. I'm gonna have you stand as I read our scripture of the day. We normally do this at the front end of what we do, but I thought it would be kind of interesting to put it on the back end for today. And so as they are coming up and getting ready, I read to you this. Moses says, Now search all history from the time God created the people on earth until now, and search from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything as great as this ever been seen or heard before? He showed you these things so that you would know that he is the Lord, he is God, and there is no other. He let you hear his voice from heaven so he can instruct you. He let you see his great fire here on earth so he could speak to you from it. Because he loved your ancestors, he chose to bless the descendants, and he personally brought you out of Egypt with a great display of power. He drove out nations far greater than you so that he could bring you in and give you the land as a special possession as it is today. So remember this and keep it firmly in mind. The Lord is God both in heaven and on earth, and there is no other. If you obey all the decrees and commands I'm giving you today, all will be well with you and your children. I'm giving you these instructions so that you will enjoy a long life in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your great grace. I thank you that you started a plan way back with one person, and we are the legacy of that plan. And we still are called to execute that vision. Now, there may be some of you in the room with us today or you're watching online with us and, and you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, but you go, I wanna follow Jesus. I feel that tug in my life today. If that is you, where you're at, at home, in here, whatever, you just simply go to God and say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me, I, I've not been a part of your plan. I've not necessarily even wanted to do your plan. I, I've, I've wanted to go the way of decay instead of the way of flourishing, right? The Bible calls that sin, missing a mark, right? not hitting the target, crossing a line. And Jesus is like, awesome, because I came to forgive you of all that stuff and to step into your life and to make you different, give you new life. And, and you'll find from that, man, then life is better with Jesus. Not easier, not simpler, but better. If you make that your prayer today, we would love to know. You can tell us through our app. You can see me outside as I'm out in the front. But if you made that your prayer, we're thrilled. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the mission. Welcome to the vision. Welcome to the calling. Jesus, help us all to live that out well. We thank you and praise you in your good name.